Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Today, we pay a return visit to the blackberry, raspberry, and boysenberry growing grounds of Sacramento County Master Gardener Pam Bone to find out what are the problems hitting gardeners' caneberry plantings this summer. And it turns out there's plenty of issues, both pests and diseases. Fortunately, there's a lot of easy ways to implement controls. Today, we're talking about solving your summer berry patch problems. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Labutalon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in just a little bit over 30 minutes. Let's go. back we visited pam bone sacramento county's original master gardener in her berry patch she gave us a lot of great information about caring for berries if you want to hear that go back to episode 182 so we wanted a midsummer update on how her blackberries and raspberries and other cane berries are doing and pam it looks like uh, the harvest is over the harvest is over and we had a real good harvest. It's not completely over though because um, when we say cane berries, we're standing right now in my boysenberry patch, but we also have a lot of raspberries and those are fall bearer raspberries and they will produce another actually even bigger crop usually about the end of August it'll start up and then into September, October. So we still have more crop to go, but yes, the boysenberries are done and we can start uh, doing the pruning and trellising and training and all of that th- needs to be done for next year. So what were the problems this year? Well, the worst one that we had was the fruit tree leaf roller. This is a little worm that drops out of um, oak trees, of all things, and usually just sort of chews some vegetation down below, fruit trees and your azaleas if they happen to be underneath somewhere or different plants. This year, though, well, in fact, they probably were here before this because we didn't get any fruit last year and we didn't know why. And this year we went out and we really did a patrol and looked carefully and there they were eating all the flowers and they would then roll themselves up into a leaf like their name is and they would then poke their head out and eat a flower right next to it with a little developing fruit or whatever and so we had to crush them and we crushed them by the hundreds every single day for almost two weeks and it's a good thing that tool is attached to you all the time yes right your fingers right yes definitely um we wouldn't have had a crop this year and this year finally then we did get a crop and uh, i put up a bunch of quarts for uh, pie you had mentioned earlier in in talking about your berries that you actually had a problem with crickets. Well, not the cricket that you think of that goes chirp, chirp, chirp. Um, This was the arboreal camel cricket, and it showed up back in 2017 in our landscape, and we've had it for a few years, and now we randomly see it. But that year, oh, it was horrible. And actually, uh, a master gardener had sent me a description and a picture of some damage she was seeing on her leaves. And of course, the first thing you think of when you see that, ratty, tatty leaves kind of all chewed up. You think, okay, slugs, snail, are they climbing up the... uh, cane or maybe earwigs, they're they're a problem too. This was in May. And so I said, well, I don't have that on my raspberries. Well, guess what? 
I didn't know I didn't have it uh, or I had it, but I went out and I started looking and I saw the same ragged leaves with big chew marks in them that look like maybe caterpillar damage or something. And I thought, hmm, maybe it's an earwig, but I didn't see a thing, not one thing during the daytime. So what I tell a lot of people when they call the Cooperative Extension Office with their questions and they can't find a pest, I say it may be a nighttime pest. You're going to have to go on flashlight patrol. And sure enough, I went out there with a flashlight like that night around about 11 o'clock at night and there they were the arboreal camel crickets they were just chewing away they are fast so best remedy then was I would just collect them and every night I would go out there and collect them and then they showed up this year I think maybe we had two and that was about it no need to use a pesticide it's a good thing I didn't recommend to the master gardener that she put out earwig bait or anything uh, for snails and slugs because that wasn't the problem how big are these crickets Oh, they're bigger and fatter and real fat little guys um, than the normal cricket that you see, brown and that. But yeah, look it up, arboreal camel cricket. I think you'll find it really interesting. If people are squeamish about using their thumb and index finger to crush them, uh, how does uh, sweeping them into a bucket of soapy water work? Well, actually, I, I am squeamish when they're that big. The fruit tree leaf rollers, I would crush. They're little. But these guys, oh, yeah, they, they'd make noise when you crushed them. And so, yes, that's exactly what I did. I just took a bucket around with me. Actually, you don't even need any soap in it. They just fall in there. And as you're holding it, they're going to drown. And that's how I knocked them off. All right. Two problems down. Now there are soil-borne diseases that a lot of people have to contend with. Uh, one that is very widespread here in California is uh, Phytophthora. Actually, it's found all over the United States. Unfortunately, it's one of the most serious problems of every kind of crop, whether you're growing vegetables or fruit trees or uh, landscape trees, for that matter. Phytophthora is an opportunistic uh, fungi that lives in the soil. It likes uh, poor drainage. It likes it moist and wet. It usually shows up in the uh, spring months when the soil starts to warm. And the problem is, is that uh, it causes complete dieback of, in my case, raspberries that happened on. I've also had it on an apricot tree. I've also had it on a persimmon. I know it's in the ground. It's just present. But a lot of times, like any disease, unless you have that triangle that we think about where you have to have the environment, you have to have the actual pest or pathogen, and then you have to have the, the susceptible crop, one of those is usually missing. And that one year, it was so bad. And now we have it every year, just a little bit, though, where it's in the soil. So we know it's there. They like the raspberries. We do have heavy clay soil, but I manage it with drip irrigation. We used inline drip emitters to water. And sometimes, though, you'll have a wet spring. The soil is starting to warm. The soil is very wet. It takes a while to dry out. And this fungi knows that uh, it's going to attack. So, yes, we get uh, canes that don't show up right then. It usually shows up when you get a hot spell. Because what they do is this fungus plugs up the vascular tissue, the part that transports the water and the uh, nutrients, the sugars and things. And so it's in the summer months then when uh, uh, or early summer uh, when it gets hot out and it can't take water up and all of a sudden the thing just starts to die from the top down and that is phytophthora. You'll see it, people call all the time, not just in raspberries, but uh, we get it in melons especially and uh, tomatoes, all kinds of plants. And it doesn't show up till summertime, even though it started usually in a wet spring. 
Can soil solarization uh, knock back Phytophthora? Yes, it can. Only the surface soil, though, gets uh, Phytophthora. Really, uh, the soil solarization is something that I recommend. Sanitation, taking out the plants as you see them and, and digging them and proving drainage. If you're putting in a new patch and you know you've had, um, or a vegetable garden or anything, and you know you had it, yes, I would solarize. That means, though, you're taking something out of production, whether it's your raspberries or your cane berries or whatever, or your vegetable garden in the middle of the summer because soil solarization only works if it's hot, hot, hot out. And that means usually July and August. And it's with clear plastic, not dark plastic. Painters drop cloth. As long as you get the stuff that's not too thin and falls apart and you're always sitting there scotch taping it, works beautifully. I've used that myself. And uh, yeah, soil solarization where you use the clear plastic so that the sunlight penetrates through the soil is nice and moist. You put down the thinnest plastic that you can put down without it tearing to pieces, and you secure the edges so it stays moist and it's nice and warm under there, and you'll solarize all kinds of things. You won't just uh, solarize uh, for Phytophthora. You'll also get rid of quite a few weed seeds, too, and weeds. For those who don't have warm summer areas, or I should say hot summer areas, does doing it later in the year, maybe fall with black plastic, would that uh, help control Phytophthora? No. You have to have the clear plastic. And I think most people, if you leave it on long enough and you start maybe in June and you keep it through the summer months, you're going to probably have enough heat that will build up under there if it's in the full sun. If it's in the shade, that is a problem. But unfortunately, berries don't do real well in the shade Anyhow, they'll produce lots of flowers, but you won't get any fruit. You need it in the sun. Another problem people have been reporting uh, with their cane berries, that it has to do with the weather, because when the weather fluctuates crazily, where you have maybe a week of 100 degree temperatures, followed by a week in the 80s, it throws a plant off. It certainly does. A lot of the problems that you have in your garden, in your cane berries, in your vegetables, in, in your landscape, for the, that matter, is environmental. A lot of the diseases that you get or the pests that come in, take advantage of the fact that you have strange weather. It might get too hot and dry. Spider mites, for instance. We've had some really hot weather, and if you are not careful and the plants get a little dusty and dried out and maybe the irrigation's not giving them the moisture that they need, then these spider mites take advantage of it and they go crazy. And you look out there and one day they look lush and green, and the next thing you know, your berries, your plants just look scorched, like some fire went through it. That is all cultural. There's just a number of problems that happen because of culture, environment, the way we water, the way we manage our irrigation is probably the most important thing you can do for your berries in the summer months because that is critical. They're setting a lot of the berries, especially your new canes and things that are coming up for your um, boysenberries and your nectar berries and your olala berries and everything. Those are setting fruit now. They're setting the buds in some of those canes and you stress them now, you'll wonder, well, what happened next year when they're not producing very well? Well, it happened the year before. So you need to be really careful about watering and irrigation and, and checking. And I always tell people that if you're a real gardener, you know how to bend over. But sometimes maybe we forget. And I think people need to just learn to bend over and check their soil. Go out there and periodically, you, you go, oh, I'm used to my landscape. I know how often I set my clock or I, I go out there and I put on irrigation or it looks dry on the top, that kind of thing. And you know, every so often you've got to go out there. I use a soil tube, a soil probe that I have. 
works really well. I know you really like those little um, soil meters, water meters that you push in. The expensive ones. The expensive ones that work, right. But just using your finger or a, a long screwdriver or a little trowel and occasionally looking, particularly if you're seeing the plant just not looking quite right, then check the soil. Find out what's going on underground. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's SmartPots. SmartPots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. SmartPots are sold around the world, and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles, and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, smart pots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits too. Water drainage issues? Not with smart pots. Roots that go round and round, choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with smart pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED, F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit SmartPots.com FRED for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount, SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Let's get back to our conversation with Sacramento County Master Gardener and Landscape Horticulturist Pam Bone. We're talking about summertime problems in your berry patch. The blackberries, boysenberries, raspberries. One big problem, spider mites. The control for spider mites, then, I guess, would be a, a nice dose of overhead watering. Overhead watering um, really helps occasionally. We, even though we're on a drip irrigation system, every so often we'll put up one of those wave oscillating, going back and forth sprinklers just to kind of uh, wash the plants down. And the other thing is, is if you've got an active infestation, the best thing to do is go out there and blast it with a hose. You take a leaf rake or something and you lift up the leaves so that you can get underneath. You cut out any canes that are just really gone, and many of those are the ones that already bore earlier in the spring. So you can cut those out and they're just filled with mites anyhow. And so sanitation is really important too. And you can do that in the summer months. Well, you don't need to wait till winter to take care of some of this stuff. Yeah, let's talk about uh, those diseases or pests that if you prune it out, the problem goes away. Exactly. There are things that you can prune out, particularly, well, like the diseases and the insects, like spider mites for, well, technically a spider mite's not truly an insect, but... An arachnid. An arachnid. It's related to spiders, but it's one of those things, like mites um, um, are, they're like spiders. Go in and, and prune them out. Were you thinking of a particular one that you've had a problem with? I was thinking of raspberry horntails. Oh, all of the cane borers and the raspberry horntails. Yes, they go to roses, too, by the way. The raspberry 
raspberry horntails. Raspberry horntail and other cane borers often just bore right through the pith or through the middle. And many times you can just go in and look to see where the, how far they've gone down. With the raspberry horntail, it's easy because on your berries or even on your rose, the tip just droops and you go, what happened? It's wilting. So of course, you know, the first thing people think, I've got a water. It's not water. You go look a little more closely and then you start cutting back and you'll see then inside there is a little larva then that's tunneling down and you can cut it out. Cane borers, sometimes they're sneaky and they go in through the side. And so they're down further and they can go all the way through the cane and you want to get them before they go down into the the whole plant and and destroy it. But with raspberries and um, other cane berries and boysenberries and that, you can uh, just cut out if you are worried at all. I like to cut it out only if you know that you're cutting out an old cane or one that you know has been infested. Again, you've got to be a detective with all these things. There are so many things that mimic what's happening um, out there. You could think, oh, it's because I didn't water enough or there's um, something else going on. And so you've got to go out there and really check it out before you make a decision. And specifically before you spray any kind of a fungicide or an insecticide or other pesticide. With borers, then you would just be cutting that branch back until you see a solid center core. The tunnel is gone. Exactly. So just the little pith in the middle, uh, usually many of them bore right down through the middle of that. And oftentimes you'll come across the little uh, caterpillar inside there, or the little larva, I should say. And what you do is just prune it out then. That's the way to do any of the cane borers. Uh, that's the best way to do it. Another problem that people are reporting coast to coast in their uh, cane berries is something called crown gall. What's that? Crown gall, unfortunately, is a bacteria, uh, not a fungus this time. Crown gall forms these kind of knobby, warty, hard, uh, woody-looking structures at the base of fruit trees. And with a berry, it would be right at the base of the cane and attached to the roots oftentimes. And we recommend just get rid of it. Take it out of there. And the whole cane? The whole cane. Get rid of it and that it's in your soil and it's really hard to do too much about it. Um, that way you try to want to plant where there is not crown gall if you can um, help it because that's basically what you do. And you try to um, disturb the soil as little po- as possible and you try also not to create any kinds of wounds. They come in through pruning wounds or um, on a fruit tree, for instance, not just a pruning wound at the base, but uh, some people plant their fruit trees in lawns, which we don't recommend, and nick it with a lawnmower and the crown gall will go in through that way. But with uh, the berries, it's often in the soil and we just, just take it out. Can you move it around using uh, hand tools like trowels? Only if you're cutting away at the gall itself. So be really careful. That's why we should just use sanitation and you should get rid of it. We have seen crown gall on just a very few of our raspberries and I mean our boysenberries, excuse me, and we just dug them out and that was it. Not a problem. Uh, Crown gall also likes it nice and moist and wet too. So you got to watch that. Another problem people have, fortunately not here, knock on wood yet, Japanese beetles. No, we've had them um, in the area over the years, uh, going back to when I first started uh, with the Cooperative Extension as an advisor. I remember back in the 80s, there were traps put out and people would call all the time with Hoplia beetles. 
that uh, go to roses and they look like little green uh, beetles, but they, uh, Japanese beetles are so much more beautiful, even though they're extremely destructive. And we've managed to trap them out of California. We don't have them here. Every time they come, they put up a quarantine and that, but boy, the rest of the United States, they have a real problem with Japanese beetles in many places. It's really serious. And the cure for that, it, well, it's basically not a cure. It's a control and that's uh, soapy water. That's right. Just knock them off, spray them off, do whatever you can to get rid of them. But pesticides are not very effective, if at all. Another pest, oh, it's not a pest, really. It, it's a noisy little insect that often gets confused with the Japanese beetle, but it's much bigger than a Japanese beetle, the green fruit beetle. Oh, I love the green fruit beetle. Every so often, you'll find um, the larva of it in your compost pile. It's quite massive. It's a huge thing, and they live in compost piles. So the first time I ever saw in my own yard, I ever saw the green fruit beetle was not the adult. It was, what is this massive looking big giant larva thing in my compost? Found out it was a green fruit beetle. But when you see the green fruit beetle, at least in our area, they are not really destructive. They're just gorgeous, but they are, they look like a B-52. They are so big and they're uh, absolutely iridescent green color. So yeah, some people might think that they had Japanese beetles if they saw those, but no, these things are twice the size, maybe three times the size of a Japanese beetle. And they make one heck of a noise like a biplane when they fly. That, that was the first thing that startled me when I saw some in, in my uh, tomatoes a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, they're not innocent. They will chew on fruit. Yes, they will. But I didn't see, we have a lot of fruit trees in our landscape and I didn't see any damage from them at all. I didn't worry about it. They were in the compost. If I really want to get rid of them, I'm sifting compost. I just let them die then and then I don't see them. But they show up so uh, sporadically. I guess the lesson here is that people need to identify, as I've said before, whether it is environmental, whether it's an actual insect or whatever. And then if you say, okay, you found an insect, is that insect really causing the damage? Is it a real problem or not? I know you and I were talking earlier and we were talking about a horrible problem that we had this year with uh, plant bugs, true bugs. And the uh, immature stage of the leaf-footed bug caused serious damage to every single suncrest peach we had. The tree didn't have a, it never, not one peach escaped and they're multiple. What they do is they put their little proboscis in and they suck out the plant juices so it leaves these little hard spots all over it. I think the fruit is half the size it was last year, even though we thinned pretty heavily. You've got to cut out these little things out of there. But there is a beneficial insect that we were talking about that looks a lot like that. So you have to identify before you just start willy-nilly spraying or whatever and boy, those things you can't spray for anyhow, and they run away from you, and they're really hard. You're out there constantly stomping the ground trying to get these little nymphs because they drop off, and immediately they're running all over the ground. Oh, it was devastating this year. Yeah, the adult leaf-footed bug is very recognizable by its wide paddle-like feet, almost like a duck. The nymph stage, though, is a dead ringer for the assassin bug, which is a beneficial, and there's only some slight differences. That is true. Um, the color, sometimes you'll see the red color start. You'll see a little red on it, but then you'll go, well, that could be a box elder bug. 
that could be a tarnished plant bug. Maybe those really aren't a problem. And yeah, so you don't know. No, those aren't good guys either. But on the other hand, they don't cause devastating damage and you do treat them a little bit differently. Well, mostly you just ignore those. But uh, yeah, it, it was a real problem. And uh, yeah, this spring was just ideal for insect uh, activity. What's nice, too, in the years that we've been gardening are the questions that come in from people. And the questions have changed. They, they used to preface the question with the phrase, what can I buy to control? And now it's more, what can I do to control? So if there's one advancement that I really like that has happened, it's this trend towards integrated pest management. I agree. Integrated pest management where pesticide use is dead last. And you start with all the other things that um, you can look at, uh, cultural, mechanical, hand picking, just like you were saying, sweeping things into a bucket, whatever, those kinds of things, uh, making sure that you're planting in the right location, that the plants like it uh, where they are and are happy. Uh, so there are just so many different integrated pest management techniques before you ever get to the pesticide. And then before you even use a pesticide, you make sure you identify, I've said this so many times, identify the pest because those people that do want to use pesticides oftentimes just go into a nursery willy-nilly and just say, oh, I've got such and such, and they start spraying whether or not they even have. Maybe it's not even an insect. Maybe it's a fungus. Maybe it's they didn't water right. Maybe it's because it's been really hot and, and it got scorched or what, who knows what it could be. And then you start with the least toxic pesticide if you're going to do it. So integrated pest management isn't organic gardening per se, but it uses a lot of the principles of organic gardening before you ever even think of using a pesticide. Yeah, that's a mistake a lot of people make when they do buy an insecticide. They assume that the product will control whatever pest they have. They may not even see the pest they have mentioned on the label, but they figure, well, if it controls that, it'll control what I have. No, it has to be on the label. And actually, a really good one um, to um, look at is a disease that we get on our berries, anthracnose. It's found all over the United States. Some places it's worse than others. It has these little spots all over, or leaf spots. And sometimes they'll be purple, um, a little purple in the middle and kind of brownish on the outside. And so you'll see these leaf spots. And so people will go and look for if they know it's anthracnose or a leaf spot and go look for a product. So I was investigating what can you use for leaf spots? Because I've had some definitely on our um, boysenberries. Uh, the anthracnose or the uh, leaf spots. And there were a couple registered products here in California. I looked on the internet. I saw all kinds of products, but none of them were able to be used in California. They were things that uh, just aren't registered here. So then I narrowed it down to two of these copper containing products. Well, one of them doesn't even list anthracnose or leaf spots at all, though it did have berries or cane berries on it. And another one specifically had cane berries and leaf spot. You really should find the pest, you should find the plant, and you should know that that's what the uh, fungus is that you have, and then you could spray for it. And part of read and follow all label directions includes using the dosage that they say to use. More is not better. That's exactly right. In fact, it can be toxic to the plant if you use at a higher level. It's not going to kill the pest anymore. They've worked that out. But you might fry your plant by putting it on too heavily and time of year. Remember, if you're in an area 
where it's, well, if you didn't read the label right and you said, oh, this thing says leaf spots. I've had leaf spots. I'm going to go out and spray right now. And no, you didn't read the fine print. You're not supposed to use it except for in the dormant season, late dormant season or when it's cool out. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll come out and there won't be a leaf left on your boysenberry plant. Yeah, that's a very important point to make, especially in the summertime. There could be a warning on that product that says do not apply if temperatures are in excess of 80 degrees or when uh, bees are present. Exactly. So you've got to determine. And 80 degrees, I get this question all the time from people. Well, does that mean that I can spray at night then? Will I have enough hours once it gets down to 80? And so how long, how many hours are you going to have too that uh, it's not going to be above 85 or 90 degrees? or whatever it says. The worst pests that we have, though, Fred, in this landscape, and I've been watching them the whole time. You can see it on the fence right there. It's a squirrel. Yes. Um, my husband says that they are basically rats with pretty fluffy tails because they are horrible, and they have been trying the whole time we've been talking about these pests to get into our peach tree. We have netted everything with bird netting, and it's not mostly for the birds. Yes, the scrub jays will get in there, so we do have to net for them as well. Well, we do have to net for um, the the birds, too, but it's mostly because of the squirrels. And they get in there, and um, they're, they're horrible. Rats will get in there, too, but mostly it's the squirrels. It's awful. No cure for squirrels. There is the brown squirrel that I'm looking at is not a protected mammal in our area. You know, we're not going to do anything about it. It's, it's, it's in, we're going to keep it out with a netting. However, you should know your own wildlife in your own area and know whether you're not even allowed to do something with them because the gray squirrels here are a protected mammal and you have to have a license and you have to uh, get, get it from uh, the proper authorities and, and all of that before you can uh, then take them in some way. And the one thing you don't, some people, well, I don't want to kill the squirrel. Maybe you are legally able to kill these non-native squirrels because, you know, they're, they're so cute. So I'm just going to trap it in one of those live traps and then move it somewhere else. Well, that's illegal because you're just giving the squirrel to somebody else. It's out of its habitat. It may not live, but then it may also set up house in somebody else's landscape and start eating all their fruit trees. Uh, no doubt they will. Yeah, exactly. So anyhow, squirrels are another real problem. I would say because I'm here um, representing the Master Gardener Program here in California, we have a fabulous resource, the Integrated Pest Management side of UC, unit, uh, UC Cooperative Extension. I often tell people, just whatever it is, just Google UC IPM peaches, you know, whatever, squirrels, earwigs, all the things we've been talking about today, and they will have some really excellent information about what to do culturally, environmentally, and pesticides if they are something that are warranted. Now, that's in California. If you're somewhere else, you want to go with uh, your own cooperative extension or your own nursery professional and find out what's in your area. What problem? Don't rely on the internet to tell you something and all of a sudden I get more people that are sending me emails saying, Pam, we have such and such in our area now and we don't. They found it on the internet. It's never been seen in our area. A lot of good information about berries with Pam Bone, who, by the way, is the keynote speaker at Harvest Day at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center on Saturday, August 6th. It's a free event if you're in Northern California. Come on out to Harvest Day. We'll have a link in the show notes. It's a beautiful demonstration garden. You're sure to pick up some good tips and you can visit their berry area. Definitely. And you can come out and learn about how to select a landscape tree for our changing climate. Pam, thanks so much. Thank you. 
On Friday's Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast, we continue our chat with Sacramento County Master Gardener Pam Bone about another berry issue facing gardeners this summer. What the heck can you do with all those berries you're picking? Pam has three great recipes that are easy to prepare, and they're a hit with everyone who has tried them. It's in the next Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. It's out Friday, July 22nd. Find a link to it in today's show notes or visit our website, gardenbasics.net. That's where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter delivered to your inbox each Friday. Also at gardenbasics.net, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the podcast as well as read a transcript of the podcast episode you're listening to now. That's at GardenBasics.net. For current subscribers, look for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter Friday, July 22nd in your email. Take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter. And it's free. Find the link at GardenBasics.net. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, gardenbasics.net, and that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.